so Aaron, just some things to kind of keep in mind before we start here is that we are very like time insensitive when you do this. So we're also insensitive. We are, are very insensitive, just personality and. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be good. It'll be good for for viewership if you make me cry. <laughs> Camera. Well, we'll see what we can do. I mean, <laughs> right. Ryan's got some. Ryan's got some zingers <laughs> in his back pocket. <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, featuring bourbon news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. And today, we are looking at a Cinderella story of bourbon. Smoke Wagon felt as if it came onto the bourbon scene like it was fired out of a cannon. In the past two years, they've become one of the most highly sought-after brands. However, the story of Smoke Wagon began over a decade ago. Aaron Chepinick started in the bar scene in LA that expanded into Vegas, but he ended up getting burnt out with all the late nights and all the partying. That led him and an investor friend of his to start a vodka business, which eventually opened the door to bourbon. Aaron had dreams of distilling his own whiskey, but quickly had to face reality when he realized that the equipment he purchased to distill whiskey just couldn't scale after he did a little bit of a business trip to visit a distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. When he was at MGP, he ended up buying as much H product as he could, but he also had the foresight to begin putting down new fill barrels as well. As fate or uh, government restrictions would have it, he couldn't release his first bourbon for almost four years after. He's built a cult-like following with his overly transparent personality on Instagram, which makes him even more genuine to us bourbon enthusiasts. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Kyle Mann at Bourbon Numbers on Twitter, who writes, In 10 years, when we look back at this time in bourbon history, what will be the biggest story? Rejuvenated demand tariffs, COVID, online sales, or something else? You know, I think the story of uh, tariffs and pandemics those have been that story's been kind of told before. Uh, you know, whiskey was around during the Spanish flu, it was actually a treatment for the Spanish flu. Tariffs, I mean, bourbon distillers have been dealing with tariffs since we became a unique product of the United States. It's just it's just how it is. It's always been there. And while the distillers and even I get very, you know, defensive about it, it uh, I don't think that story's ever going away. I think the online sales that Kyle Mann brings up here, we are looking at an evolutionary phase in the business where online sales are not only happening, but they are thriving. And then you add in some of the fake stores that are coming in and stealing customers away from the online retailers uh, with fraudulent bottles. I mean, we have potentially here a, a story that can really get defined in the next year or two. Um, and the minute that Amazon becomes the, you know, they're trying, they're trying, but the minute that Amazon crosses to the other side or Walmart and Costco and Meyer and Target and some of these other big box stores get, uh, get alcohol out for delivery in all 50 states, the minute that happens, you know, the wall, the wall of the three-tier system will, I don't think it will crumble. I just think it's going to add some doors to it. And so the minute that the distributors can figure out how to use this, use the online system as a tool of, versus uh, some of them seeing it as a threat, the minute that happens, the game is forever changed. And I think that the online sales and the three-tier system uh, is the biggest story that we have right now uh, for for the future of bourbon. But that's a great question, Kyle Mann. If you want to be like uh, Kyle Mann, who you can find at Bourbon Numbers on Twitter, you can hit me up at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or just write me on fredminnick.com. But that's going to do it for this week, folks. Be safe out there. Cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. 
It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Today, the whole team is here, and we're going to be talking about one of these brands that kind of has risen into fame as of probably the last few years and really began to be known amongst the bourbon community of having really high age releases. And then from there on, people just started gravitating towards the brand. And it has been amazing to kind of see the trajectory on what this has really been built off of. And that brand we're talking about today is Smoke Wagon. So Ryan and Fred, I mean, Fred, I know you have a personal relationship with with our guest today. Kind of talk about how the first time you heard about Smoke Wagon and what your kind of first initial impressions were. So I saw a, a lot of, uh, you know, talk about Smoke Wagon and, in you know, saw people talk, you know, bringing up in like the Facebook community and stuff. And it was just, you know, for me, it was like it was one of like a lot of brands that kind of come out uh, and just get some attention. And I don't have I don't have the time or they don't reach out to me or whatever. And I can't get a bottle or don't get a bottle. And it's kind of they're they're there i'm aware of them uh and then i'm in uh you know i got i got a bottle and i tasted it i was like yeah you know what this is this pretty solid uh you know mgp stuff and and i knew the story of aaron and and how he was uh uh, doing a vodka and um (laughs) but we would the moment that really where i kind of flipped uh and started really paying attention to smoke wagon was I was I was in Bellagio, and um, somebody recognized me, and the guy walked up to me and he says, "Mr. Minnick, I'm a fan. I'd love to give you this bottle of bourbon." And it was Smoke Wagon. It was a it was a barrel pick uh, from Total Wine, and um, you know that bottle lasted me a couple of years, and it was very special to me because that was a very nice gesture, and that so that stood out to me, and it, it Smoke Wagon kind of started becoming what I started seeing is like. That started becoming like a gift, uh, you know, to people, and it would it really it kind of got, and I don't know how it got there, but it got in that same circle as like the Blantons and some of the B-Tacks and like some of the things like that of people like going batshit crazy for them, but um, you know that's what 
I how I always think of a of the brand. Of course, Aaron and I've we've spooned together since then, and you know, been on a few dates together, <laughs> oh boy, and this so is, forth. But uh, I want to hear yeah. about that. Who's the big, who's <laughs> the who's big spoon? Very, little very spoon. loving. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? How how what was the first time you heard about Smoke Wagon? You know, I mean, just like most people, you see them. I saw them online, but then we went to a barrel pick at Jack Daniels, and I, I, I forgive forgive me for not knowing the name, but one of our patrons was from Las Vegas, Nevada, and he was kind enough, brought us a bottle, and I still have it here. Uh, he gave to me, and uh, I'm drinking on it now. But uh, that was kind of the first time, and then I, you know, with any source brand, you're always like, everybody's always like, well, who's behind it? What's going on? You know, and then once you taste it, you're like, wow, this, you know, cause it's all MGP, but you got some real talent blending it and making it stand out on its own. And, and then you just, you saw how somebody that understood the new bourbon consumer and who it is like someone who's young, who's online, who's on social media, who likes to, uh, you know, flaunt their bottles and show off their collection. And they really, it seemed to me, they really leveraged that, uh, that channel and, and I thought it was so smart because a lot of bourbon brands have been slow to do that. They've been kind of more traditional, like let me buy a print ad or bus stop, or let me put all my eggs in, you know, award shows or reviews. And, um, yeah. I thought that was interesting that, uh, it, you know, it was a brand that really leveraged social media and to kind of take off. And I've, I've, I've been kind of jealous of it. Really. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. And I want to come away. So with some tips today for Marin, cause, uh, Man, they've done a, a fantastic job with the, the whole media thing. So kudos to them. They got some great blending and some great uh, marketing for sure. Yeah, and we'll have to see if where he shops at to get his hats, and we'll see if we can get you one to to start get start doing <laughs> like that those, for ourselves. I like those glasses and rings too, man. Those are so oh, sharp. So you've heard him uh, laugh a few times, but now let's go ahead and introduce him. So today on the show we have Aaron Chepanick. He is the co-founder is and co-owner, and likes to be a little bit of master of everything over at Smoke Wagon out of Las Vegas, Nevada. So Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. You forgot 10-time gold, double gold, blender. Four-time <laughs> four double gold. Four I don't know how many gold. golds we've won. I've, I've lost. It's getting heavy, too heavy, huh? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, to talk about the Instagram, well, see, the thing is we didn't have any money uh, <laughs> for <laughs> advertising or anything like that. We spent it all on inventory, you know? I mean, that was the thing. It was like we... Uh, you know, when I say we, it's just me and Jonathan, my business partner, there's only two of us, and which is why we move so fast, you know. I do everything by gut instinct, and I tell him, I'm like, we should do this. And he's like, well, hi. And I say, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just have a feeling. Just feel and, right. Uh, yeah. That was like the straight bourbon. That That's the one that I could, you know, really think of where I just said, man, everything's just getting weirder and more expensive and harder and harder to get. And I just feel like we should just do like an, you know, cause that was after the private, you know, we went small batch and then we, you know, the next year was uh, uncut unfiltered and then, um, and then it was desert jewel and then it was private barrels and we were like, what are you going to do next? I was like entry level bourbon that everybody can drink and afford because I just feel like that should happen. Well, we'll, we'll definitely touch on, on some of those here and let's kind of, roll back the the clocks here a little bit kind of before even before even bourbon or anything like that let's kind of talk about you know like how did you grow up where, where were you born and and sort of kind of how did you make this way to to where you are today oh well you, that's a that's a very long story uh so i let's was do it born in two in minutes <laughs> uh, two minutes i was born in winston i was born in winston-salem north carolina my family is from uh north florida my father was a scientist. He moved uh, to become a professor at Thomas Jefferson Medical College so that my sister and I could go to a good public school because they didn't have money to send us to a good private school where we lived and the, the public school system was not any good. He hated it there. He felt I was growing up rude. And so we spent every summer either in Western North Carolina in Pisgah Forest or uh, North Florida he was from jacksonville so we'd go to jacksonville and then you know usually jacksonville beaches like every everything north of Saint, south ponte vedra those beaches there and then um i spent a year about a year and a half almost two years living in scotland when i was in high school and uh my father went and did a sabbatical at the university of dundee and asked me if i wanted to go and i said oh you know it 
And so I lived in Newport on Tay across the Firth of Tay from Dundee. And all my friends were the bad kids from Dundee, but I went to school at um, Madras College in St. Andrews, and that's where all the nice kids lived. Did you get your first taste of uh, whiskey over there? I mean, do you remember when that happened? <sighs> my first taste of whiskey? Yeah, I remember my first taste of whiskey. It was Yukon Jack. <laughs> I don't even know that's technically really whiskey, though, but I remember we got it. And we were, like, drinking it because, um, you know, uh, New Jersey – New York was still 18 to drink, 21 to buy when I went to college, and New Jersey had just passed the law, and they had like a, a like you'd get a grandfathered in if you were 18 when they changed it to 21, but that was my first taste of whiskey. And then scotch. My father was a big scotch drinker. As a matter of fact, when I went to Scotland by myself a year after we came back to see all my friends, he got he got me like a, a letter, like permission to bring back more uh scotch like more liquor than you're you're supposed to be allowed so and i was only like 18 then i was like brought back like a whole 12 bottles of scotch that you couldn't really get here but like real bourbon i mean and whiskey really wasn't until recently it really wasn't until uh you know i mean i had all the bad stuff growing up mixed with sugary bubbly things that will make you puke and give you horrible hangovers but i wasn't really drinking anything delicious and neat until probably six years ago something like that six seven well no now it's got to be longer because we went to mgp in 2012 and by then i had already switched over to drinking bourbon so time's I, running away it, from you there isn't it? it's crazy man i mean there's like parts of when i think about that 2012 it's like was that a thousand years ago when <laughs> you know i was like a totally different person but here you go i'm talking about stories like yeah i just started doing it like six years no it was uh it was longer than that so yeah because i was a I was a big vodka drinker not because i liked it or anything but because it was easy and i was just i had all this manic energy i was crazy i was i was i i can't explain it i don't know my whole life I was just always struggling. I was always like, I never felt secure. And then when I finally, I made, you know, move after move. And then I finally opened my first bar and I bought a house when I was 32. And before then, like I was always working when, especially when I first moved to LA, I was always working when everybody else was like partying. And I was like kind of the boring one. And then when the bar opened and I bought a house, I was like, okay, I, I'm safe now. And I lost my fucking mind. And there was like, I couldn't wait to get out the door. I couldn't wait to get to the bar. And then when the bar in Vegas opened up, I was like, oh, I'd come home at like, you know, 11 in the morning and I was just vodka, vodka. And so uh, I was like, I need to slow down. Well, rewind, rewind a little bit here real quick. So what was the idea of, of starting a bar in LA? So the irony of everything is now, you know, business bar with Jonathan, who's a writer, director, he's had four of the you know, highest grossing screenplays of all time. He just had a movie come out on Netflix, uh, The Ice Road, and that was number one for a while and in the top 10 for weeks. And I start, I went to film school and I used to work in the film business. I mean, granted, like first it was in construction and then it was, um, in I got my CDL and I was a, a teamster. And then I moved to LA and I was like, I'm really going to try to do something in the film business. And it was just, I don't know, I just, I just wasn't into it anymore, you know? And so I just got to this point where I was like, I would rather be broke and in business for myself and in control of my destiny than working for these people. And I got my wish. I was totally broke for a while there. <laughs> and so my first business was uh, like this antique store with this buddy of mine who, um, so he was uh, sober when I met him for a month and he used to be a speed dealer. And he had all these antiques from trading, you know, from tweakers. And I was trying to help him out because he was sober and he was getting his life right. And he was always like, tell me we should open a store. We should open a store. And I was like, no, I want to make, you know, film business. I should really focus on that. And then finally I was like, let's just do it, man. I don't care. And it was so much fun. We had a great time. You know, we were in, um, it was in Silver Lake and all these, uh, man, like all these, film business women like single women were moving to that part of la and like 
oh, it was just like I'd be in there with all this cool stuff and talking to them about about all this cool stuff. It was it was great. It was a great time. Did a lot of those lessons like do you remember like if I was able to bring a an antique, could you evaluate it? Like could you go on Antiques Roadshow and do that for those guys? I don't think I could evaluate like the the cost. I don't know any of that anymore, but I could, you know, give you an idea when it was made based on the construction and everything and you know, to to a certain degree. I mean, we never dealt with like colonial signature pieces, you know, but uh especially cuz we're on the West Coast, so everything was like, you know, 1880s and and forward, but yeah, I mean, but also I don't have the connections I do anymore, so I had to ask people, you know, what something was. And then from there, I went in on this deal on this piece of property in Silver Lake. Uh, so I, we rented a big part of it to flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And uh, he did a music school for kids there. Um, back when when Vice was like real and, and they were kind of cool, they did like a, a retail space. Um, and then so anyhow, so from there I had, I, wa- I just wanted to keep moving forward. So I sold my share to my business partners and I was going to do another real estate deal. And this guy told, who did real estate, he said, look, I, he was rich. And he had multiple developments going on. I said, if there's any problems, whatever. He's like, you have a chunk. Don't do it. You could get hung up. And so I knew this bar guy who used to walk down the street from, and we'd talk in my store all the time. And I was like, hey, I'm getting this amount of money. Could we do a bar for that? And he said, oh, yeah, for sure. Because back then in LA, you had to buy an existing bar. You could not go into a retail space and and get a conditional use permit to turn it from retail to especially what's called a 48 liquor license, which is alcohol, no food. And I said, well, if we did one, what do you think we'd make? And he told me, I was like, okay, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. We're going to do that, you know? And uh, it was a trip, man, because I ended up building it. And when I got a job in construction, the film business, I met this um, construction foreman and he offered me a job when I was doing an internship, when I was still in college. He was like, oh, if you ever move back to Atlanta, I'll give you a job. But I was like such a cocky little shit. I was like, yeah, like I'll ever do construction. I'm going to be a famous movie maker. <laughs> and she, you know, and sure enough, man, he, that's who I got a job with. And it's like all the better for it. You know, I, I had to do all this physical labor and I learned a lot about myself. And, and then all these years later, learning how to build fake stuff, I could build this bar myself exactly how I wanted to. And it was cool, and I was having a lot of fun. And then uh, Jonathan and his wife moved to Pasadena, and the bar was in Eagle Rock, and I met him there. And he was like, this is like the best bar I've ever seen. And I was like, yeah, well, thank you, you know, because <laughs> every detail was perfect because I built it all myself. And I just heard about what was going on in Las Vegas, which was they were trying to revitalize downtown. And again, you know, that was before the revitalization of Hollywood or downtown L.A. So we're still in L.A. where you got to buy a bar. But Las Vegas, you could just turn a retail space into a bar and it was going to be this totally unique thing. And I said, yeah, man, like, let's, you know, he he said, I love this bar. I always want to do a bar. I was like, yeah, let's go uh, check out downtown Las Vegas. And uh, because they're doing this whole redevelopment deal. And we just, you know, we went out there and checked it out. (laughs) And it was crazy back then. Oh my god, it was it was rough. It was nuts. Crazy, as in like just the town was not not what it is today. It was just no, very especially not downtown. Kind of yeah, uh, east of Las Vegas Boulevard was bad. It was a very, it was, and it was all tied to the Seven Eleven on the corner that sold loose cigarettes and those little vases like this the fake roses that's actually in a crack pipe and that was like the hub of insanity Wait, oh, hold on they, they were selling crack pipes yeah it's it's hidden as like oh it's a little vase for a rose and it's got a hole in it now you my know? next question is how do you know this aaron <laughs> i people told me i had no idea i didn't even know about the loose cigarettes it was um uh-huh. A uh, representative of my landlord told me. My landlord at that time was Rosemary Shung, who was the granddaughter of Milton Shung, who was uh, he was from San Francisco, and he, he opened the first Chinese-owned, like, uh, 99-cent stores and built his fortune that way. And she had just inherited the property. Really cool. 
So you started building the bar in, in Vegas and assuming you worked on that for a few years. Year, Yeah, it took, it took a year and a half. Yeah. And then open it up, work there. And then at some point you said, okay, well, what's next? Yes. that That's pretty much what happened. There was uh Jonathan was always, he started talking about it first. He was like, we should do a, we should uh, do vodka, you know, and we were drinking vodka and that was, you know, it was like 2009 when we started talking about it, you know, and things were insane. It was, uh, you know, all those, all the table service in, in Las Vegas had vodka and all the, there was, everything was so overpriced and we were like, yeah, we should just, we should do like a Russian style vodka where we use silver filtration, which I didn't really know <laughs> what it was at the time, except, you know, we won't use corn. So it's cheap and we'll be a premium vodka and an affordable price. And that's what it, what got it all started, you know? And, um, he was talking about it and he was talking about it. And, uh, and then finally I just kind of realized that the path for the bar business is sort of finite because, the only enjoyment I got out of them was going out and hanging out in the bars that as I got older, you know, I, I knew I wouldn't want to be doing that anymore. And even as I got older from there, it's like one day I'll be like the weird old guy in the bar, you know, and creatively I was bored. I, you know, I love designing them and building them, but once they're open, you're just managing every, you know, you're managing the crowd, you're managing the equipment, you're managing the staff, all these things. And, uh, I wanted to learn something new and I didn't really want to open more bars. So I just, I said, you know what, let's do it. And so I, I tracked down a silver filtration system, which, uh, I don't know if you heard the story before, but now. Oh, let's hear the story because it sounds, it sounds like there's an interesting path here. Yeah. So, so silver filters are just regular. Uh, they're not like uh, carbon. They're activated carbon at coconut husks so that like fluid can't pass through them. It goes around the outside of them and they're coated in silver and they were developed in Europe for sort of the same purpose as a reverse osmosis because silver has natural antiviral and antibacterial properties. Obviously, you, you don't care about that when you're doing vodka but what they noticed is that you don't get any ash residue in your end product and so it it's cleaner it doesn't have this dry sort of uh flavor to it now i bought a whole system from russia i could have just bought the filters they're just 30 inch sanitary filters um so that was it. That was learning. And also like, you know, you go to the website and they're huge. They like show it like at, you know, these massive facilities. And then when I got mine, I like that it showed up at the uh, air, you know, the terminal, like the cargo shipped it here on an airplane. And they're like, hey, uh, you can pick up your thing. I'm like, well, how big of a truck do I need to rent? And he was like, oh, you can probably just fit in a pickup truck. And I like went and got it. I was like, okay, are there more boxes? And he was like, no, this is it. <laughs> you know, then you unpack it. I'm like, it's like, uh, you know, spinal tap. I'm like, is this the model? Is this, <laughs> is this you know? And I, I called the, the woman who sold it to me. She said, no, that's the size for the production you're going to be doing. How much was it? I don't remember. It was so long ago. It was a lot. It was thousands and thousands of dollars. And all I needed was some filters. You learn things, you know? So you, you started the, the vodka thing. And assuming, did the business do well? We never opened with the vodka. No, we, so at this point I was drinking bourbon. So, so you Every, started down the path of wanting to do vodka, but then you yeah. started drinking bourbon and said, we're just going to scrap it all at the window. No, we still do the vodka. We just, we added the bourbon. Oh, so, okay. uh, so at that time, I think I went to, I joined ADI and went to them for advice. And at that time, uh, Dave Picarell was helping craft guys get started. And so I hired him as my first consultant. And I said, yeah, I want to do bourbon. You know, I'm kind of intimidated by it. It's like, you know, because vodka, I understood. It's like you just take neutral green spirit and you run it through your still until it tastes like nothing. And there you go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, he was like, oh, don't sweat it. You just buy aged juice. That's what everybody does. And uh, so we started trying to find aged juice. And that was in 2012. So kind of everything was done. 
we we got I got a still from Vendome, and back then no one was using. I shouldn't say no one. All the big brands use Vendome stills, but no craft guys were using Vendome pot stills. That's uh, right. Every, yeah, everybody wanted the Carl Artisan and the Bavarian Holstein ones, and I wanted everything to be done in the U.S. And to find them was like hard. I I remember I was just looking at uh, distillery pictures, and one had a picture of the Vendome, you know, plate that you know says Vendome, Louisville, Kentucky. And so I Googled it, and uh, and I called them, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we just started making pot stills," and so I I had them make us a, a, a still for us. So that we had that, we I got the mash cooker from them, fermenters, all this stuff, all ready to go. Aaron has big dreams of distilling from scratch because he's seen the pictures. He's been told the stories. He's going to sit around and use his little distiller's spigot and tell when the heads, hearts, and tails are just by smelling it like the way he's been told. <laughs> and then, so so all the, all the big brands had closed the doors on craft guys because in 2012, 275 craft distilleries opened up and they saw that collectively as competition except for mgp who had just purchased that year the seagram's plant right and so and i think that was a lot of the confusion with mgp in the beginning because nobody knew what the seagram's plant was and when you would google mgp i mean they were distilling around the country neutral grain spirit and things like that and you know making food grade protein so i don't think anybody really understood what was going on and they were in a unique position because when Diageo bought Seagram's, Diageo didn't want to own a, a distillery. They just want to own brands. So they sold the distillery to Pernod Ricard and had a contract in place saying, you got to make us, you know, all these Seagram's products, bullet rye, all, all these different things. And then Pernod Ricard sold it to LDI, which was like this investment group, and they ran it and, you know, inherited the contracts. So MGP buys it, and MGP doesn't have any of their own brands. They're just inheriting a facility that technically doesn't make its own brands. And so that's why they were sort of in this unique position. And they, <laughs> the sale, head of sales, MGP, my, did not want to deal with Dave because they had a past history uh, at Maker's Mark. And so I ended up calling him and I think they were kind of like had this expect expectation of what selling to people like small brands would be. And that was that they would come in and buy a lot and they weren't, they were coming in and wanting like four or five barrels or coming in and doing and, and looking at stuff and then not having any money to buy anything. And so when I called he was like, look, if you're for real, you're going to come out here for three days. If you're not for real, don't waste my time. And, I mean, it was, it was, I was like, oh, okay. And I, I talked to Jonathan. He's like, well, let's go out there. And so we went out there and, uh, you know, that's where I was like, oh, well, everyone's lied to me about everything forever. I mean, I already kind of <laughs> knew that everyone had lied to me about everything forever just from being in the bar business and then starting the process and understanding how things are done. And I was just like, well, okay. So that brand was lying to me. This brand was lying. They all, and I was so sick of the lying. And this is important because this all sort of, you know, helped create how I wanted to be when I became a supplier. And there was nobody sniffing little pedo. It's all, everyone's a scientist. Everybody's got science degrees and everything's computerized and they're watching computer printouts with the chemical composition of the distillate you know through a methanol sniffer and that's how it's done it's not they're not <laughs> analyzing I mean? the heads hearts and tails <laughs> yeah and then you go well hey that yeah and then you start thinking well that kind of makes sense i mean you're you're doing these things on this on the scale and uh you know you want to make sure people don't go blind and die so do you want someone who can smell it and tell oh, the temperatures where it should be, or you want something telling you the chemical composition, you know, and, and then you go to that place and it's like, I don't know, 20 acres and MGP is not, I mean, the sequence plant isn't even that big when you look at the grand scheme of things. I mean, you know, they, they're, their warehouses are letter, letters of the alphabet and it goes to originally went to L. I think there's the the steel buildings are, are new, but it doesn't get to Z yet. You know, I mean, it's like you look at some of these other places and they have a, 
125 rack houses, things like that. But I just, I was like, well, how do you scale to this? How are we going to do anything that we talked about? I mean, I'm looking at my 3,900 square foot facility and it's like, this is anything I ever thought about is not feasible doing it out of the space that we had and nothing's done the way anybody told me it's done. And we can't afford this equipment and this is crazy. Were you thinking of it just like because of what you had procured just wasn't going to be able to create enough liquid product and barrels that it would need to actually scale to be a successful business? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Were you thinking of it just like because of what you had procured just wasn't going to be able to create enough liquid product and barrels that it would need to actually scale to be a successful business? Yeah, and exactly. I mean, I think, you know, we got a 250-gallon still from Vendome. I mean, that's a, I think that would get you a barrel, you know, a barrel a day. If you work 24 hours, maybe you could get two or three, you know. And so, and, and I had this creative craft vision of fermenting and distilling, and it was all taken away from me when I saw the science behind it you know, and, and then you're like, well, it kind of makes sense. It's like, you want to distill it to, and then you start looking at the mash bills everybody's using. And yeah, there, there's some cool experimental stuff, but basically it's low rye, mid rye, high rye <laughs> bourbon, and then weeded bourbons, you know, everybody's pretty much using the same mash bills and it's the oak and the aging conditions that, that really have a lot to do with, uh, how things taste as far as an end product. I mean, I see it myself. I mean, I'm using MGP for everything and I have all experience with all these warehouses, but they don't have their own cooperage. So I can get something off the fourth floor out of a specific warehouse for, you know, three years in a row. And I kind of understand how it's going to taste and age. And then it goes from independent stave to like Kelvin or, or McGinnis cooperage and, it, and they're using different wood and it tastes totally different. And, um, and then, you know, they talked to me about, oh yeah. So when Seagram's built this plant in the thirties, it's all, it's in Indiana instead of, uh, Kentucky. Cause that's the way the wind blows off the Ohio river. And every morning they get all that moisture, all that mist. And, you know, it's on an aquifer and all the rack houses have sub basements. So it's dirt and it's always wet. And so it's just wicking water out of the aquifer and putting it in. And then if you ever looked at the old Seagram's built uh, rack houses, they only have windows in the stairwells. There's no windows. They're double masonry. It's all made to trap humidity, you know, and because that way the alcohol dissipates before the water. And so the proof goes down over time. So things don't get tannin heavy or over oaked. And I'm just listening to this going, I live in Las Vegas <laughs> where we have 5% humidity in the summertime. And I've had multiple people say, oh, it'll be so interesting to see how it ages in Las Vegas with very fast summers <laughs> and, and cold winters. You know, I was like, yeah, I know how it's going to age. It's going to go away. I'm not going to have any. These are the conditions you make. You turn wine into balsamic vinegar. 
that's what I'll have <laughs> over time. I'll have a sludge, you know, that you can put on your salad. <laughs> that's about it. And so it just sort of changed everything. And I remember I was standing out on like this uh, stairwell balcony and uh, just like staring off into space and staring at like the, the complex and everything. And Jonathan came out and he was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I was like, everything's different. Everything. I just, I don't understand anything anymore. You know, um, I thought I had this notion of what we were going to do and how we we're going to do it. And it's all changed. So then we went and like tried stuff and they're like, what do you like? And I said, at that time I said, I mainly drink, uh, four roses, single barrel. I like that high rye and it's, you know, 35%. And they're like, we have a 36%. <laughs> and so I try, I try <laughs> that, that one, that one percent, that one percent is going to change everything. And, um, so we bought everything they would sell us. We bought all their five year that they had. We didn't buy any six year, but there wasn't a lot of it. You know, it's funny. And that, that's another thing, you know, cause back then I didn't understand anything like, they're like, Oh, here, try this five year, try this six year. Well, it's one barrel. You know, I, if I went back to do that now, I'd be like, give me 20 of the five year, 20 of the, let's, let's see how they, they balance out. Cause you can't really tell from one barrel. And so the decision-making process was flawed on my part. And, um, but we bought all the five year, which was laid down by Seagram's. And then we bought all the stuff that LDI laid down and then everything MGP had laid down in 2012. And then we went on our way with still having the idea of dumping the five-year barrels any second and pulling off of that for five years until our stuff came of age. And um, the city never approved the tanks that we fabricated for the five-year stuff. And so it took three and a half years <laughs> and we still hadn't gotten approval i was like well holy shit that ldi stuff is gonna be four years old and so we could probably use that for uh you know blending for consistency because i'm just going off people's advice right and they're like oh yeah what you do is you take that four year and you blend in a little bit of the eight year because the five year was now eight year and you make it taste like a five year i was like okay cool we'll do that and uh so the original goal was to release small batch summer 2015 as an eight year and then in january when my four-year stuff comes of age start stepping it down and, and then make it a five-year so we never got picked up by the distributor january rolls around i pull the four-year and i start trying to do what everybody told me i should do and it tasted terrible it was horrible though i was like you guys are crazy i can't i can't make this taste good and so i kept messing with it and I kept adding more eight year. And then all of a sudden I got to a point where I was like, I think this tastes better than the eight year and, or the, you know, or the five year or definitely, I mean, I didn't have any five years. That was memory. But the four year I had, which is very thin and young and the eight year, it was nice, but I liked that rye spice and it was gone. And everyone said, don't do it put your eight year in a bottle that says eight year and put your youngest stuff in a non-age statement bottle. And I said, well, then what's the point? Because at this point I'd found out that the state was not going to let us distill that we're, that you could in the beginning, you, there was no such thing as distiller's permit. You would get a rectifier's license and then a letter giving you permission to distill. And that was taken away when they introduced the craft distiller's license and the craft distiller's license was way too restrictive for us. So, and also, I wouldn't be able to import any barrels from MGP because, you know, we bought all that stuff and we still weren't open in 2015. So in 2015, we said, well, let's just stockpile more inventory and, and, and keep laying stuff down. So when we open, we have more inventory. And so, you know, so by then we had over 2,000 barrels out there. So sort of the writing was on the wall. The state said no distilling. We got all this stuff in MGP. And then I discovered vintage blending, which people tried to talk me out of. And I said, well, then we really are just taking source bourbon and putting it in a bottle. And what's the point? And also, not only is this proprietary, but in my opinion, it tastes better than anything I've had. And what, again, what's the point if I'm not introducing something new to the market? And this is new. And so I just, you know, fortunately, there's only two of us. And we just said, we like this. We're going to do this. And um, 
Yeah, and, so, and that's how it all began. I mean, Aaron, you it's it's a great story because you kind of took a question out that I was like holding back the whole entire time was was thinking of, okay, well, it, they're, it's just another MGP brand, but what are they doing that's so magical that people are really gravitating towards it? And it sounds like you spend a meticulous amount of time trying to figure out what these blends are going to be and and how they can really adhere to your palate. And hopefully that's what matches to your consumers as well. Yeah, that's all you can do is do it for your palate. You can't, I mean, I shouldn't say that's all. It's all I can do. I, I'm not going to spend time trying to figure out what other people want. I'm just going to do what I like and then hope other people like it as well. Yeah, there's something else. There's another little piece to the formula of Smoke Wagon. Uh, Nevada but... Desert Magic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got to be those night skies. It, it, it's it, it's the packaging. And, and oh, it's yeah. kind of like, um, you know, I, I'm really not a fan of, of like really ornate, crazy bottles. But there's something kind of, and I've really, for a long time, I hated um you know, packaging that did not show you what was inside. So when I first saw your bottle, I was like, fuck this guy. He's not wanting to show what his whiskey looks like. Still and, people uh, to say that. And, <laughs> and now like, I've kind of like, I've, I've kind of looked at it and between yours and like New Riff and a few others, I'm like, I really dig this now. It's kind of artistic. And it's almost like a little bit of that Blanton's effect of, uh, you know, the packaging is so cool. It really does take another level uh, for people when they see the bottle. Uh, so take us through like the design of the bottle and everything, because I mean, you, you had to have spent a shitload of money on the mold for that or something, but it's, we did spend a shitload of money on the mold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that's true. Fortunately, I designed it. I, I engineered it. So well, I shouldn't say I engineered it. I built a 3d model on the computer and they were able to engineer the bottle from that because technically I didn't do the engineering drawings. But so when we came up with the name, uh wanted it to be old west i started looking at western bottles and they're all amber because they thought it preserved the bourbon so i really that's why i wanted to do an amber bottle because it was authentic and then um i started designing it and so i'd already designed the bottle for the vodka for silver dollar and i and we actually got permission from the united states treasury to tr to trademark the replica of the Morgan silver dollar because it was it was public domain. And I wanted it, oh, here, sorry, everyone. I don't mean to show off this bottle of Desert Jewel and rub it in your face, but so I, I wanted it right here in the face of a round bottle. And they told me it couldn't be done. And, and I said, why? And they're like, well, it'll be a contact point on the assembly line. And I said, oh, well, now we have an assembly line, but back then I was like, ah, it's going to be me. I don't have to really worry about that, <laughs> you know. It's a one my problem. Yeah, we, don't worry, that's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, and so, but I did engineer it so that, you know, I, I, I built it all and I took the replica of the Morgan like on the computer and I moved it in and out of the bottle until it got to a point where no metal stuck out past the glass. And then I put these little bumpers on the uh up the label so that this would hit first for sure and i sent that to them and they did these engineering drawings and then um i approved those and oh and then the desert sage i saw an old four roses bottle uh i can't remember if it was pre-prohibition or from the 30s and it it was amber and it had roses all over it and i was like oh man that's fucking cool what what can I do that's like a flower? And I was like, oh, Nevada State Flower. And the the Nevada Quarter had just come out with like the Nevada stage on, uh, Sage on it. So I took that 3D. I mean, I didn't copy. I, I drew it myself. I made my own 3D image, but I used that 3D image as inspiration for the Desert Sage on the bottle. And we were just like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you know, it just it, it was. Uh, yeah, and then once you own the mold, though, man, it's awesome because that, you know, a lot of people are having glass problems. I mean, I'm still having glass problems. It's not the glass problems. It's putting stuff on the glass problems. But, you know, when you own the molds, you just contract them to make your glass. You're not sitting around waiting for stuff, you know. Yeah. You just sure. got to make sure you tell them to make enough. Some, something else, uh, you know, and you, you and I have talked about this before. 
but there's a lot of like uh, a lot of old school folks in in the business. They see your bottle and he's like, he's got a pistol on there. That's against code, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not. I have a colas for everything. <laughs> but there, there was like this old school mentality that you didn't put, you know, weaponry on a on a on a whiskey bottle. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was just an industry thing where they thought it was bad. Like uh, one of the guys that I deal with at um, the Liquor Bottle Inc. who does all our uh, packaging coordination. I mean, he started working at Seagram's in like 1961 or 1962. And he's like semi-retired. He's like, yeah, it was always, you don't mix guns and alcohol. It's bad. And I was like, well, I I think it's good. So (laughs) Tell him not to get on Instagram. It's it's a bad place (laughs) if you don't like guns and, uh, and bourbon. Yeah. Well, everything, I mean, look, doing the amber bottle, everyone's like, no, don't do the amber bottle. Vintage blending. They said, no, don't do that. And it was always like, why not? And they said, oh, because no, nobody does it, you know? And um, you should do this. This is what people are doing. It's like, well, if people are doing it, then you're not doing anything new. You're just chasing after someone else. Like, what? Like, what's the point? It's like, I just have this feeling. This is how I want to do it. And this is how my business part- partner, who fortunately ha- wants to do it and so this is how we're going to do it, and we'll see what happens, you know? I got a question on the blending. So on the blending side, um, you know, you, you're doing the different batches and the traits. On the, the small batches or different batches, are you going for, do you have like a consistent blend in mind, or are you, or are you trying to create something new each time that you're going after? Small batch, I have a consistent uh, flavor philosophy that I'm trying to achieve, and that is fruit forward, with a nice, uh, right, you know, spicy with some heat on the finish and hardly any oak, really buried oak. And, um, and I actually blend small batch tastes a little hotter at a hundred proof while I'll try to blend uncut to like finish. Like it's nothing at a, at a higher proof. So I've got a, another one I'll throw at you here. And, and, you know, one, one of these things I was thinking of is, Fred talks about the packaging. We talked about your blending, and I'm, I'm trying to think of other things that caused your your rise to fame. And there's one that sticks out that might be a, a sore subject to talk about, and that was the stolen barrel. It ended up causing a lot of controversy with inside of the the whiskey world when one of your barrels that was supposed to go to, I believe, it was the bourbon enthusiast, got sniped yes. up and snatched by another retailer in the San (laughs) Diego area. And he just stole it out from underneath somebody through the distribution system. And there's really nothing you could do about it. Kind of talk us through what your thoughts of what was happening during that time. Oh, uh, so when I first heard about it, I was very upset. And the distributor, he contacted uh, an attorney that just, you know, deals with alcohol and so we kind of shared advice, and the attorney said that there's nothing I can do. Once it leaves, I'm not allowed to do anything. And so what happened was is I, I got the PO from the distributor, so I shipped it out. The distributor and the retailer, like, I don't know who got the picture or what happened, but the retailer who it was supposed to go through advertised it on their website before sending a PO to the distributor. So when this other retailer saw it, he, I don't know what his deal is with bourbon enthusiasts. All I know is, I mean, this was so like it, this was, it wasn't even that long ago, but it it was a million years ago, but it was January, 2020. I mean, it was a year and a half ago. And, um, yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? And I mean, if you asked me, I'd be like, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time when we rode dinosaurs <laughs> to school, a barrel got stolen, <laughs> you know? And so when James from Bourbon Enthusiast reached out, it was via email. I didn't even know he had an Instagram until he he got the, the samples and he tagged me. 
And when that happened, the re the bad retailer started sending me these crazy messages, direct messages at 1130 at night. How can you do this to me? I can't believe you're doing this. You're giving in, oh, giving people free stuff. I was like, this isn't free stuff. It they're, they're barrel. It's to pick a barrel. What are you even talking about? They're just barrel samples. I'm not giving away product to, to be shown on Instagram or something like that. And, and I didn't even know who he was. It was an email and he was like, really nice. And when we put him on the, you know, everything's first come first serve back then. I mean, it always will be just now it's no serve. You know, it doesn't matter when you come, you don't get anything. (laughs) 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 So it was crazy. So there's obviously like something weird there. And when he, when the, the, the retail, the bad retailer saw it, the bourbon enthusiast barrel on the other retailer's website, he lost his mind and he called the distributor and said, you know, oh, that this is bullshit. He shouldn't get that barrel. I should get that barrel. Is there a PO for it? And he said, no. And he's like, well, California state laws, if there's no PO, you got to send it to anybody. So I'm sending in a PO for it right now. And he's like, this is what I do. I steal barrels from Eureka all the time because they're a restaurant, so they can never get their full barrel. And so when I, I see it in, in their restaurant, I know their distributor, and I take it. I, you know, like he's like the man, like he's got to figure it out, you know. And then um, so so we tried to stop it. There's no legal way to stop it. He had to send him 75%. And I let James know. And then all of a sudden we started getting. DM requests on Instagram for bourbon enthusiast uh, members like, I can't believe this happened. How could you let this happen? And I told my business partner, I said, Jonathan, man, I don't think people understand how this happened. I just want to do a video about it. And he's like, okay, you know, because he, he he's an attorney and he was like, just just be clinical about it. Don't, don't bad mouth anybody. Just state the facts. And so I just stated the facts. And I and I let Bourbon Enthusiast know that I was going to get him another barrel, and I, you know, my distributor wasn't going to deal with the bad retailer anymore, and because I can't do anything as a supplier, I can't tell them what to do. He was kind of like so sick of that guy anyhow. He's like, "This is it. This is the last straw. I'm over it." And then uh, so we took him off the website as one of the retailers, and no one from Bourbon Enthusiast could believe that a supplier was like sticking up for a bourbon group. Like I, I was what I got from it. And, um, and I was like, what, you know, these are, this is why I exist is these guys. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, th- this is why I get to do what I'm doing. And that's why I always do like Instagram lives or zoom. Like I'll do a zoom for a bourbon group. Like we're only like eight guys. We can't believe you're doing this. I'm like, yeah, man, it's like, what, but you guys support the brand. It's like, you know, it all adds up, you know, it's all, nobody's nobody. They're all, it's all collectively is what makes it happen, you know, and you can't take anyone for granted. Well, I should, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to take anyone for granted. You know, it's like the li- lessons I've learned in life are like, I've thought I was hot shit and I've got knocked down and, and it was all for the better. But so that exposed people to the Instagram. And then they started seeing all the videos I was doing where I was exposing, like, well, not exposing, but like talking about labels and what terminology mean and how there is no actual, like, definition of a single barrel as part of the TTB. You can put single barrel on anything. I mean, they used to. Like, I talked talk to guys who've been in this business for a while, have had retail stores for a while, and like a big brand would be like, you want to do a barrel pick? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, how many do you want? He's like, I don't know how big are you He's like however big you want he like pulls like a stick like a roll of stickers that says the single barrel on it you know and just sticks them on however many of the regular product you want because there's no such thing as a single barrel and um you know so it's just stuff like that and so people are like wow this is really crazy like nobody's doing this nobody's and i was talking about mgp and talking about the blends and talking about what i was doing and i was having fun which nobody's doing everybody's very serious you know it's a very <laughs> serious tradition where seven people a day die <laughs> so that you can have the best bourbon in the world you know and i was like Woo, let's make some bourbon today all right Woo. and uh so so it was cool and that that really so so you know that's the thing it's like the the 
the bad retailers like, oh, it's me. I did it. And it's like, no, man, the bourbon guys who I, I stuck up for appreciated it. And then that's what really got, got a, a exposure to the Instagram. Yeah. And I, I think everybody remembers. And I think that was the straw that really broke the camel's back for a lot of us. Like we blocked him from all of our accounts. Like it, we just couldn't take it anymore because it. it I have not blocked him yet. Well, oh, yeah. oh he get, tags you all the time. Get yeah, ready for all some the more. time. It was tagging me. Yeah. It, but Aaron, I mean, this was this was fantastic to to learn about more about your story, your history, your past. Really, you answered a lot of the questions that that I was curious about on what makes Smoke Wagon different, what makes them unique in regards of not just another MGP brand. And I believe we're gonna have to have you on again to just talk about more stories in the future. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could tell you the other thing about not just being an MGP brand is most people are not doing what we're doing, which is contract distilling with MGP. And so, A, I'm paying day one price. So everything's affordable because I'm not buying AIDS juice. And when I do buy AIDS juice, it's just like, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to what I've been laying down. And so I'm always planning for the future and I understand the warehouses and, and what and what's going on. And um, I don't think a lot of people do. And I'm doing everything. And, you know, we bottle it all on site. And I'm in there trying all the batches and everything. So the quality control is uh, is there. And I would say the number one thing that people say, like even, um, I, I you know, a, a buyer for a big chain here locally, he met with a with a brand. And they came out with a new product that they're trying to be like entry level, but it's still, it's like in the fifties. And he's like, he's like, well, this smells like MGP. And they're like, yeah, you know, smoke wagons doing it. Smoke wagons doing this MGP and they're doing really well and they're not special finishing it or anything. He's like, he's like, yeah, but their stuff doesn't smell or taste like MGP. It, ta it tastes different, you know? And it's like, and so that's, it's cool that, uh, because, uh, you know, I mean, I personally, I deal with a lot of barrels I mean, a shit ton of barrels at this point. I mean, we're doing a lot. And, um, you know, I don't know. They all are different. I mean, everything's always changing with the seasons and the oak and, and all that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, especially now that we've been doing it for so long. You know, in the beginning, it was four and eight year. And now, like, when I do an uncut plant, it's like four, five, six, seven, nine, multiple floors, multiple warehouses. You know, just you're talking about, you know, you know five vintages. But like 10 or 11 different tanks because you know nothing's pre-batched and so we do a barrel dump we dump them in their own 350 gallon tank and so it's pretty complex you know and uh and it's cool it's i, I think it's, it's and it's fun it's interesting you know to see how it all changes and it is yeah. interesting well i i know we're all going to be very excited to keep watching you with the, the instagram the pool shots cigar shots but there's there is one question <laughs> i have for you though is that if somebody wants to get one of those hats where do they get it uh this one any of them that you wear oh well yeah the the uh well the hat band is usually the thing that makes it these feather hat bands are by brim makers the beaver hats are watson's hat shop man he makes the best hats no question but they're really? expensive so you really got to be into hats and know that you're going to have it forever until you die you know and uh you bring up death a one. lot aaron right i mean <laughs> it's a like, lot. <laughs> i mean you brought up death like five times in this show <laughs> We just want a hat, man. Well, we just it's want all a hat. coming for all of us. You need to be ready to make the commitment, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> it, it goes in the coffin. That's part of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then the the straw ones I wear now are the American Hat Company. Those guys are pretty. They're, they're really nice. And Larry Man, the Larry Man hats are nice too. They're made in Texas. Very cool. Well, Aaron, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure, pleasure, again, to know more about you, more about Smoke Wagon, your history. And if somebody wants to know more about Smoke Wagon, follow you on Instagram. How do they do that? They would go to Smoke Wagon Bourbon on Instagram. That's the way you do it, folks. So make that's sure you follow you them it. there. Make sure you where follow. Magic happens. Yes. That's where the magic happens. You see the, de the desert, that desert sky. I know we're almost out of time, but honestly, like the, just real quick, the Instagram I did it all by using the insights, you know, like, uh, it all, like in the beginning, it, I didn't show my face because coming from the bar business, the reason the bars were successful is all about the bar. It wasn't about me being the guy. 
And so when I started the the bourbon, it was all about like, oh, the bottles, you know, and everything. And but and we didn't really have a story. It was like, yeah, my, you know, oh, yeah, well, my grandfather died. He whispered the wet recipe into my ear or anything like that. You know what I mean? Or like I was 36 percent rye. I bought a, a bureau and when I opened a drawer. There was a prohibition era recipe in there. You know, and like I was like, we don't really have a story. This is what we're doing. And when I would meet with beverage directors from the casinos, because we're only local, they're like, you're the story. You need to get in front of the staff and talk about what you're doing. They need to see and hear you. And then, so that kind of translated to Instagram. So I was like, well, I guess I'll try putting myself on the Instagram. And I, you know, like bottle shots would get more likes, but if I would do a video, it wouldn't get as many likes, but man, it got shared and engaged and everything. So I was just like, you know, just trying to figure it out. And cause that was our only source of, um, you know, marketing really. And so I was just kind of like trying to figure it out and, and be transparent. Cause that was the thing I hated about everybody I dealt with in the bar business was just being lied to. I couldn't stand it. You mean your recipe didn't come from your great grandpappy brought My on over by grandpappy. During pro, I tried my great grandpappy's prohibition era recipe, and everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> it was rubbing alcohol and shoe polish with a little bit of sugar. <laughs> I love it. So once again, make sure you go follow Smoke Wagon Bourbon on Instagram. Also follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, on all the socials, Instagram. Twitter, TikTok, as well as Facebook. And make sure you also follow our good buddy Fred Minnick here on YouTube and his socials as well. And if you like the show, make sure you leave us a review and share it with a friend as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week. Fuck sucks. Thank you. Toodles. <laughs>